This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. What you know good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I'm going to have to apologize to you and the audience in advance. I have a little bit of a cold, so if I sound nasal, I apologize. But before we get started, I want to start off with a little video. Chris, and I want to see what you think about this video. So, so let's let's run this video real quick. Is Vice President Kamala Harris the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. And by the way, she's very politically astute. I don't think people give her enough credit. Uh, She, of course, values based, consistent with the president's values and the rest. And uh, people don't understand she's politically astute. Why would she be vice president if she were not? But when she was running for it. Uh, Attorney General in California, she had 6% in the polls, 6% in the polls. And she politically astutely made her case about why she would be good, did her politics, and became Attorney General. So don't not, people shouldn't underestimate what Kamala Harris brings to the table. But do you think she is the, the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So when people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I say, because she's the vice president. That's the job description. You don't do that much. So, Chris, in this video, you have Nancy Pelosi, who used to be the leader of the Democrats in the, the House, you know, the House of Representatives, unwilling to say that Kamala, Vice President Kamala Harris is the best pick to be vice president in 2024. Uh, She says there, he asked her several times. She says, well, you know, Biden thinks she's the best pick. So uh, that's all that matters. What in the world is going on here, Chris? Can, can, Can you enlighten us? You know, there's not a lot of love right now for the vice president. I think people think that she's a liability on, uh, on the Biden ticket. Um, but it's a bit of a quagmire. I mean, you can you can tell that people that if if there were full throated support, the answer to that question is absolutely Kamala Harris is the vice president best choice uh, for no hesitation. No hesitation. And the fact that you've heard uh, Speaker Pelosi or former Speaker Pelosi uh, do this, but a lot of people when you ask them when you see them talking about Kamala Harris uh, on on television. They just don't have that full-throated support. Um, But I don't know what they can do about it, and I don't think they know what they can do about it because they also can't come at her because she's locked into that space. 
is a bad look for the Democratic Party if they, you know, skip over uh, the first African-American woman to be in line uh, for the presidency. Even though, as Speaker Pelosi seems to know, it's very unlikely that Kamala Harris ever becomes president unless she, you know, gets elected vice president with Joe Biden. He meets his demise. But, you know, it's a it's something to watch. This is going to be an exciting election season. Yeah. And another I can't remember who it was, but another Democrat um, like the next day did the exact same thing. Just would not say, you know, they complimented her after not saying because at, at best, this is condemnation by faint praise. Right. You have Nancy Pelosi talking about, yeah, people wonder why she doesn't do anything. She doesn't do anything because she's the vice president. That's all you got. Right. Now, we can say that some of the criticism has been unfair. I think some of it has been warranted, though. I mean, when you see just her rambling, right, like she has this thing where she just rambles and it just doesn't make any sense, even with her notes there. And so I don't I don't know what that's about. But I think a lot of people have lost confidence or I have a family member who is a, a donor, a, a pretty large donor. And when I heard him say that he was like, nah, she just ain't got it. Uh, I was very and this was probably a year ago. I was very surprised to hear that. Uh, so it's going to be interesting, but it does show you that there are talks that she may not be a part of this this ticket. At least there are conversations. Now, I used to be with you. I used to say it's too big of a move to take her out. But is it really? If you do it early enough, are the people who would be mad, which I don't think is that big of a group. It ain't all black people, number one. It's a it's a group of kind of sorority, you know, sorority sisters, stuff like that, who are going to be really upset. Howard, folks who went to Howard, understandable. Are they really going to give vote, uh, give Trump the presidency? Are they really going to say, I'm so mad that I'm really not going to vote for the Democrat and I'm going to sit out and let Trump win? I think if you do it early enough, you bring those folks back in. You get somebody who, you know, isn't, isn't such a slap in the face. I don't know. Is any you think there's anything to that? I mean, I think that that makes sense. I think that it goes against, though, how the Democratic Party thinks about its politics. Um, and I, I think for the Democratic Party, it's going to be too big of a move. It's going to be I think that they're going to read more black people are going to be uh, offended by this. Uh, more women are going to be offended by this. And ultimately, I think that the Democratic Party is going to read that. Trump's beatable. And as long as Trump is running out front in the Republican Party, that they don't need to do really anything significant. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't say that it's likely. I just think that the people who would be most upset are the people who are most likely to never do anything but vote for you vote for Democrats anyway, who are not going to sit out. I don't think it's the people that you really have to worry about. So not maybe not likely, but there's, but there's conversations like something's moving, something's going on because that would never happen. Nancy Pelosi is a lot of things, but she's not dumb and she's very strategic. And so she's doing that. You know, that's happening for a reason. She's not she's not going there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that you're 100 percent right. I just don't know that folks inside of the Democratic Party are going to see it that clearly uh, and, and that easily. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not an easy move. I mean, you already see the Republicans kind of talking about it. Nikki Haley said, hey, voting for Biden is like voting for Kamala Harris. And in all the poll polls, even when Joe Biden isn't doing well, she's doing worse. Uh, and so we can talk, you know, there's a long, you know, we can go back and forth on why that is. There may be a, a bunch of different reasons, different reasons for different people. 
The truth of the matter is she's just not very popular. And if you think about it, she had to drop out of the race before she got to her own state because she was losing in her own state to Yang. She came in as maybe even the favorite. She came in as above, as far as the mainstream media, as above Biden, as the person that a lot of people in the establishment wanted to be that one. And after that one hit that she got on Biden, she just kind of fizzled out. So I think it's a mistake for people to think. I think some people assume there's so much of support for her, but it hasn't really shown nationwide in the polls, nor did it show during um during the election uh, last time around. So interesting. We'll have to keep our eyes on that. But I was surprised to see that they handled it that way. It seems simple to me that if it wasn't going to happen, if it wasn't even an uh, option to, to, to remove her, then you very seriously. Yeah, she's the best person. And if I have to come back and go back on that later, then they would go back on that later. But to refuse to say it again, condemnation by faint praise at best. Very interesting. Well, before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you are watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. Uh, if you want to support us even more, make sure that you become, again, a patron on Patreon. And you can go to um, patreon.com slash church politics to support what we're doing on the Church Politics Podcast. We greatly appreciate you. But we're about to get into it, so grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And we'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives? and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, glad you all are joining us. Let, let me, as I usually do, start this uh, off with a, a little scripture, if you don't mind, Chris. Uh, all hard, hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 14, 23. A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Proverbs 13, 4. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Luke 12, 
Luke 12, 15. What I get from these passages, Chris, what I glean, what, what I understand them to, to mean if we, if we analyze them together, is that working hard and gaining wealth isn't a bad thing. To be wealthy based on the work that you've put in is not bad. To be wealthy is not evil. However, we must avoid greed. These passages don't necessarily make it easy, though, Chris, to, to delineate where one's, one ends and one begins, right? So, so we, we get a lot of principles out the Bible, but we don't necessarily know at what point we become greedy, right? It's not, you know, is, is there a certain amount in my bank account where at that point I become greedy? Is there a certain amount that I have to give? Otherwise, I'm greedy. We don't, we don't get that line drawn so clearly, right? It's really about our heart. It's really about being prayerful about it. It's about honestly seeking to do the right thing and to avoid those things. It's not about knowing the exact moment when you go from one into the other. That's not always clear. And it's, you know, a lot of times when we look at things like greed or we look at sins that may afflict others, we tend to be able to feel like we can draw an easy line, but that line may not be so easy for them. All right. And maybe God didn't intend to draw a line that's unmistakable in every circumstances, in every circumstance. Our heart has to be right. We have to, again, be prayerful about it. Now, I've heard, Chris, people use the Bible, and we talked about this before, to defend socialism or promote socialism. I've heard people use the Bible to promote capitalism. And I've always said, and people that listen to us know this, I've always said that we have to be very careful about that. Because just because uh, some of the principles in the Bible align with one or the other doesn't mean that God was endorsing a specific economic system especially in how it manifests itself today in society. What I mean by this is just because the Bible says all hard work brings profit doesn't mean that God approves of Wall Street and all of its practices. Doesn't mean that God approves of private equity, of how private equity operates in, in every situation, right? Capitalism and socialism aren't equal in my eyes, but both systems are broken because we're broken. And so I always say that we have to be careful about saying one of these is divinely established. All right. Now, Chris, that brings us to the conversation about the federal wealth tax, which would place an, which would place extra taxes on the wealthy. The wealth tax has become more popular with some due to what I, I don't think we, any of us can deny, which is income inequality. I think you should know, if you don't already know, that income and wealth inequality is higher in the United States than almost any other developed country, and it is rising. The top 1% make 26.3 times more than the bottom 99%. The top 1% take home 21% of all income in the United States. That is by definition income inequality. Now, some Democrats have proposed several different federal wealth taxes to try to cure this. 
in March, President uh, Joe Biden proposed a wealth tax that called uh, for a 20 percent levy on households worth more than one hundred million dollars uh, applying to total income, uh, including and this is the one that's this is the part of it that is is, is really uh, controversial, unrealized capital gains uh, or asset growth. Now. We have to understand that one of the problems that we have with our, our tax system and all that is that many of the richest households bypass taxes through sophisticated estate planning strategies. And so this is trying to, uh, again, address that issue. Now, Chris, some are hoping that the Supreme Court strikes down wealth taxes before they even are enacted. Right. So that proposal that I talked about from Joe Biden has not been enacted. And some people are hoping the Supreme Court strikes uh the the government's ability to do that in the more versus US versus United States case before it even is enacted now more versus the United States chris in this case the issue is whether the government can tax income that hasn't been realized unrealized income is profit from an investment that exists on paper but hasn't been sold for cash so you made the money you basically just haven't cashed out the appellate court in this case said that the realization of income does not determine whether a uh, whether a tax is constitutional. Right. But it may go to the it may, you know, the Supreme Court may say otherwise. Now, one of the interesting things about this case is that a former Obama solicitor general, Neil uh, Katyal, wrote an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. And so you just so you know, an amicus brief. Uh, amicus means friend of the court. Uh, it's someone who is not a party in the case, but wrote a brief in the case because they think they have a perspective that the court needs to hear or they have an interest in the case. Right. So he wrote an amicus brief um, to the Supreme Court trying to outlaw these wealth taxes. So it's interesting. Uh, it would seem like this uh, draws down uh, partisan lines, but it doesn't necessarily. Chris, give me a, your thoughts generally on wealth tax, greed, where it begins, where it ends, and how the Christians should posture themselves within this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, think that from a, the perspective of how Christians need to approach this situation uh, on a person to person, household to household level, I think it absolutely uh, th thinking about a a disposition of heart. Um, when it comes to, to being greedy, having too much, those, th there are a lot of, uh, variables that come into play there. I mean, for instance, I, you know, well, right now I don't think I, but there, there was a point before I started pastoring where I was making, um, a decent amount, a decent amount of money. Um, but that same money, if I were making it today, it would go, you know, a lot less, you know, far because today uh, I have six children, you know, and, and that changes things. So how much you have, how much responsibility you have, all that stuff goes into it. When we start to elevate this to a societal level, um, I think we have to look to uh, a lot of guidance that we could have in the scripture and maybe we do a whole different think a side Bible study or something, but from the old Testament all the way through the new Testament church, there is this 
consistent idea that as a society, a community, as a group, um, there shouldn't be excesses where uh, one group or one person has an overabundance and another group does not have the basics that they need. And I think that's the goal of a wealth tax um, is to make sure that, you know, we are setting a floor in our society where you're not preventing anybody from becoming wealthy, uh, but you're certainly preventing folks from falling into a place of abject uh, sort of poverty. And one of the things that is contributing to this increasing, um, you know, wealth gap, which is is probably, in, in my view, not the best way to even think about this, because it's not just a gap in wealth; uh, it's a gap, it's a gap in lived experience, and um, you know, it's a it's a, 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 a an amount of suffering uh, that people shouldn't have to go through in our society. Uh, that's increasing because you are seeing. Uh, more and more folks able to concentrate wealth at the top through a lot of uh, these sort of, you know, what I think of as tax loopholes, um, you know, the low amount of capital gains tax where, you know, that capital gain is, you know, quote unquote, unrealized income. And so it's either not taxed or taxed at a very low um, rate, carried interest loophole that allows, you know, these large investors to uh, get this investment income. It also is not taxed. Um, The stock buybacks, all these types of things that allow folks to basically, in my view, hide income from from taxation. And I don't think that that is good. I don't think that is just. I don't think that is right because I think it's hiding income. What folks are going to try to hide behind uh, when you talk about unrealized income uh, and you see this even in some of the amicus briefs that are um, being filed right now. Somebody's going to come up and say, well, if you're a homeowner and the value of your home appreciates year over year, that's unrealized income. Uh, so should that be taxed? And I think that that is a, you know, a, a real strawman argument in that court case, I think, because that's not at all what a, a kind of wealth tax would be um, targeted toward. Um, and so you got to be careful that and I hope the court considers that when they leave this capacity for taxation open. Uh, but we also should think about simply closing some of these uh, some of these loopholes um, and making those classifying those specific types of income as basically as realized income because you, you don't want a a billionaire's capital gains to be looked at in the same way as you and me having our, our the value of our house being appraised, you know, $25,000 more than it was last year. Now we got to pay tax on $25,000. So there are protections, real protections. And I, I know, you know, my super progressive uh, listeners who, who, who would love to hear me and us go all in on, like, yes, we got to, you know, absolutely make sure that this court case leaves all unrealized income uh, open to taxation. I think there is a little bit of separation that you have to think about in terms of the things that everyday folks have, you know, your 401k, your home, those types of things being taxed year over year versus these 
much larger gains that are currently classified as unrealized. Yeah, and I think it's important for Christians to be intellectually honest when it comes to stuff like this, right? Because, again, the question that w- that's on the table still is, at what point do we become greedy, right? And if we're using, if we're, we can intellectually, intellectually dishonestly push for the, use the, use the tax code or push for the tax code to be changed in ways that goes against the spirit of what, of what we're trying to do with taxes in general, right? Uh, just because something is the law, just because there's a loophole you can use, and this is easy to say, doesn't mean that it's necessarily right based on the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish and based on where our country is today, right? That said, let's be very clear that tax laws, tax laws can go too far, right? You can start, there, there is a point where you start taking from people in a way that cannot be fair also, right? So you have to, you have to really be, you have to really focus in on that. But again, let me ask you this, Chris, you're a billionaire. Chris, Reverend, you know, Reverend Chris hits a big, he's a billionaire and you might be one now. I don't, I don't know that. Um, how do you know when you become greedy or when you're outside of what the gospel would have you do and, and act and, 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 and keep? I mean, I would hope that somewhere on the way I would have realized that having billions, depending on what I'm doing with them, um, would be greed, but you step back from this. I mean, I think everybody in the United States has to really take stock of where we are in, in the global situation of the world, where we are in the, uh, even in the, the sort of uh, long uh, view of history that many, many, many of us, most of us may, maybe virtually all of us are, very privileged uh, when you think about global context uh, and all that type of stuff. And so when, when I look at it that way, which is how I'm constantly trying to look at it, I think you can easily be greedy without being a billionaire. Uh, I think if you're greedy, um, you know, when you are working class or middle class, when you are uh, not generous, when you skip those sort of Holy Spirit prompted uh, opportunities for generosity and ignore those generous impulses, that's when you're greedy. I think that if you become, if you, the more wealthy you get, I'll say it this way, the more wealthy you get, I think you just become more and more of whatever it is that you are, wherever the disposition of your heart is. Because um, you, you can have access and control over billions and and be very generous with it and don't be uh, you know greedy with it. Or uh, you can have... Uh, very, very limited access to wealth, you know, thousands of dollars only, uh, and be very greedy, uh, very um, ungenerous uh, with those resources. So again, I think that part of greed is a disposition of the heart. Um, And, you know, as we discuss things like taxation, economic policy, and those types of things, you really want to be bringing a, a generous heart. And I think, you know, kind of what we try to frame out in our end campaign framework is that really, if you're only getting involved in these conversations to make sure that you don't get taxed or to make sure that 
you get some more help from the government or any of those types of things, you might be approaching the whole conversation and, and, and not an ideally Christian fashion, because as we try to talk about a lot in our framework, Justin, we should be looking at civics and politics primarily as a platform to love our neighbor and not primarily as a platform only to defend our own self-interest and protect ourselves. So you, you don't necessarily have to go broke, but you do have to have an, a generous heart. Right. There's nothing wrong with with having wealth. Uh, That may be how you've been gifted to some extent, but you do have to have a generous heart. You do have to be willing to give, even if the Bible is not going to give you an exact number that you have to that you have to do at at all times and all that stuff. You got to be prayerful and you have to have a heart to do what the Bible is calling you, demanding, requiring that you do. We will be right back on Church Politics Podcast. Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. The Chris, the United Auto Workers Union uh, was founded in the 1930s, um, and they have done something really big, done something that hasn't been done in, in a while, which is they have gone on strike against the big three, which are General Motors, Ford Motor, Stellantis, which is the parent company, and Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram. As the New York Times notes, the strike is not a full-scale walkout by the union's roughly 150,000 members, but a limited and targeted work stoppage by about 12,700 workers uh, that the union has threatened to expand if talks remained bogged down. Uh, It began, this whole strike began after the workers' four-year contracts expired, right? So once those, you know, they they are collective bargaining. Once the last agreement expired, now they're they're trying to uh, negotiate the next agreement, and it hasn't happened quick enough for the union, or they don't feel like the automakers are negotiating in good faith. The UAW, and this is again coming from the New York Times, the UAW has demanded a 40% wage increase over four years. And that's an amount that the that union officials say matches the raises the top executives at the three companies have received over the past four years. So they're basically saying, hey, you got your your you've raised you've given been given raises to about 40 percent. We need that same raise. They're also seeking cost of living adjustments that would nudge wages higher to compensate for inflation. Uh, and uh, and they want to reinstate and they want a reinstatement of pensions for all workers, improved retiree benefits and short, shorter work hours. OK, as of September 15th, uh, the companies and so this may be updated by the time you hear it. But as of September 15th, the companies offer to, to raise uh, pay around 14.5 percent from 14.5 percent to 20 percent. Over four years, their offers include lump sum payments to help offset the effects of inflation and policy changes that would lift the pay of recent hires and temporary workers who typically earn about a third less than veteran union members. In the weeks leading up to the strike, and this is the interesting part, Chris, in the weeks in the weeks leading up to the strike, a cat and mouse game 
between the UAW and the companies unfolded. A version of guerrilla warfare uh, between the parties started to kind of occur uh, through targeted walk-offs. So remember, the union is not, they did not just do say everybody leave work immediately. Basically, what they said is we're going to choose certain plants and we're going to take all the people on those plants off. And the more that they don't negotiate, we'll choose different plants strategically to have people walk off. They won't know which the, what those plants are. All right. So through targeted walkoffs, the union aimed to disrupt the company's operations with the fewest possible workers, which would allow the union strike, uh, which would allow the union strike fund to last longer into the conflict. Right. So when these workers leave their jobs, they act. There's actually a fund where they still get they get still get paid from the union. Well, if you if everybody leaves at once, then you can only you're only going to have that fund for a few months. If you do it strategically and just have people at different strategic plants leave, that fund is going to last longer. So what ends up happening is the companies, when this first started, believed that they knew which plants they were going to stop working at. Well, they got tricked. They actually had the wrong plant. So what the companies did is they took manufacturing uh, technologies and, and all that stuff, like production, distribution, all that and moved it to other places from one plant to another. But actually, it wasn't the plant that was actually getting shut down. So all moving all that stuff actually ended up backfiring on them. It's interesting. I mean, I think the UAW is being very strategic here. Uh, I think, you know, they may be may have the upper hand right now. Chris, how are you seeing this whole strike business? Yeah, I mean, first off, I have to say that uh, the, the UAW workers, um, I think it's a very important context for everybody to have that and back in, in 2008, uh, when, you know, we were trying to save Detroit, you know, the president, uh, Obama at the time was trying to save the auto industry. Uh, there was a lot that taxpayers did to come in and help save uh, the industry, but there was a lot that workers did. Workers gave up those cost of living adjustments. Workers gave up those pensions, which they had still under contract in the, in that time. They uh, voluntarily gave up those uh, those things in order to save the industry. And so, over time, as the industry has come back and is making uh, clearly uh, a lot of profits, enough to do uh, you know forty percent. Uh, uh, increases and in, in, uh, compensation for executives enough to do $5 billion in stock buybacks. Uh, that seems like an industry that now is doing well. Workers are saying, you know, basically cut us in on this because we sacrifice to help save the industry. We've been working in the industry and are a huge part of what makes profitability happen. And so we want to share uh, in those profits. And so I think that that's important context for why the UAW is doing what they're doing. How they're doing it is just one heck of an organizing job. Um, the ability to be able to orchestrate this, 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 you know, what they're calling the stand-up strike, where different shops and different places go, go off the job, uh, you know, at, at different times. That just takes a ton of coordination uh, behind the scenes and. Justin, you know, we've worked on some things that are national in, in scope um, and in and, and the, the limited size of the AND campaign. There's just a lot of communication, a lot of coordination that has to happen, even just to get like pastors from different cities to sign onto a statement. 
right? So to to be able to organize this, I think it speaks very highly just of the the seriousness, the professionalism inside of that that union. I think it's uh, strategic. Um, I also think though that one part that is missing in some of the commentary, a lot of commentary that I've heard about it, is that it is also responsible. Uh, it's a responsible approach to this strike because. You know, if the if the auto industry goes totally flat um, right away, that has impact not only on those companies, but it does have impact on somebody who maybe wants to buy a new car uh, sometime soon. Yeah. Um, it has impact on car dealers. And, uh, and so I think that it shows that the UAW is taking seriously the impact of their labor uh, and that they have some serious estimation of the the role that they play in the broader economy um and I, I would i would hope that that speaks to policymakers i would hope that that speaks to um the executives who are negotiating um to show that this is a serious group of folks with a a serious operation but that have some serious demands and i think some some justifiable questions at least to be asking about how compensation is going to work, um, how job security is going to look as the industry transitions to electric vehicles and all these types of things. Um, my personal view is that this strike is being handled in a, a, a very professional, a very um, strategic, um, but also a fairly responsible fashion. Yeah. I mean, the strategy has been has been very good from what I can tell. And one of the things that we see playing in the background, you named one of them was what they're worried about auto workers in general is the transition to uh, uh, electric cars. Right. A lot of electric cars is just a battery. So there's not going to be a lot of, uh, you know, that for, some say, you know, you lose almost 40 percent of your workers because you just don't need them to create those electric cars. There's some other things going on with that. The batteries, do we get the cobalt from Africa, which is some of that is controlled by China. You know, there's a lot that goes into that conversation of whether we're ready to fully make that transition or not. But that's something that they have to be aware of, that they have to be uh, paying attention to. Uh, so I get that. The other thing that's going on in the background is the, pres- is the presidential election, where you have Biden, who has basically said he's, he's with the workers, but Trump one ups him and... Uh, is going to be in Detroit giving a speech to the auto workers, right? So now a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are wondering if the president is actually going to have to go too or not go because it's only going to look like he's following behind Trump. So so interesting move by Trump. Um, Biden, you know, has said that he's standing by them. We'll see if he ends up going to the picket line. But those are some of the things that are going on behind the scenes. But but I agree with you. The way that the, the strategy that the uh, UAW has, where everybody's not leaving all at once, that does a lot of different things. Not only does it allow them to maintain their fund, but it makes sure that, you know, everything doesn't fall apart. Um, it, it's just it's just a, a, a an interesting strategy because you don't know where the next, you know, if they expand this uh, strike, you don't know where it's going to hit next. And so, you know, the. Uh, the, the folks in the corporate offices are, are just kind of left wondering what they're going to do. And obviously they bring in advisors who are kind of union busters and all that stuff. We'll see how it goes, man. I, I hope that they come to a, a conclusion that allows, you know, workers to get wages up because I think in America in general, wages have to go up 
if and we've already talked about income inequality, that's not going to change until wages go up. And we just need to rethink how we treat workers and the relationship between the corporate offices and all that stuff and the workers. Anything else you got to got to add to that? Uh, not much. I, I, I totally agree uh, with what you said. And I think that this type of labor action, while it may make some folks uncomfortable, I think that it's an important part of a free market to have workers be free to uh, to form associations, to form unions, and to act together uh, in the market. I, I'm, you know, I, I just think it's an important part of it. Um, like you, I hope it comes to resolution that does not, you know, badly disrupt the entire economy. Uh, but I think it is important that workers be able to act together uh, in order to win a fairer share and a, a, a better livelihood for themselves and their families. Yep. And if you look at polls, Chris, the American people are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly with these auto workers, with the unions uh, and what they're doing. One last thing that I'll point out is that Tim Scott was asked about it. And it's been interesting how Republicans have been responding to this No, looking at, you know, where the American people are on the issue. And Tim Scott, I gave what I, I don't know was a, uh, uh, a great response. It seemed tone deaf. And that, that's not to say he has to change his values based on where the people are. But his response was, hey, I would do like Reagan did when he laid off uh, all the uh, what, what was it? The air traffic controllers. Right. He's like, OK, lay them off. Number one, I think that's tone deaf just to talk about it that way and not give any consideration to the workers and what they may be going through. But it's also a bad comparison. That was a that was a public union. They had a contract where they said they would not strike. And so for you to apply that to a very private, you know, for, to a matter like this, a public, you know, um, a matter like this didn't make a lot of sense. You, this is private sector, my friend. There's two very different things. So I don't know. I mean, I know he I know he's a pretty smart guy. I think he missed or whiffed on this one. Nikki Haley also gave a response that was like, are y'all paying attention to what's going on? Because it, it was very again, it was very much that 90s uh, GOP response, but not giving any consideration. I'm not saying you again, you have to change your principles, but not to give any consideration to what these workers are going through. And, and just the struggles of, in the wage issue that we have in America altogether seem to me to be a pretty bad response. So, well. Appreciate y'all. Y'all know y'all know what it is. Thank you. As always, thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate y'all uh, and y'all listening to what we have to say. Hopefully it was beneficial to you. As always, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, this episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. 
Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.